Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Look, I know you want to get to the podcast. I'm going to keep this short. When it comes to opera, we're the only ones bringing you everything you need to know about the art form, the people, and the stories you know, we every haven't damn done a roundup week. of other podcasts about opera late, lately. Uh, we, know we, we love Aria Code, but there are other shows out there. There's like Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, or Opera, Drugs, and Rock, is that what it's called? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, but there are other people out there. So we don't know if, if other people are bringing people the stories they need to know every week. These are other really great yeah. opera podcasts for me to poop on. <laughs> hey, check it out. Five bucks buys an ad on social media. Ten bucks covers our website for a month. Twenty bucks makes a hundred lapel pins. So if you haven't seen our ads on social media, it's because we don't have five bucks. Or maybe five bucks isn't enough to cover our ads on social media or maybe we need to learn how to build the audience for those things look you know? 20 bucks that's enough to l- buy a face mask for our whole team so they don't catch coronavirus we can share the mask yeah that is not gonna work <laughs> yes right. the mask is not even gonna work we're all doomed the olympics are canceled thank you matt cummings look don't think you can give oh yes you can simply review us on apple podcasts share our facebook posts or just retweet okay. us and tell people hey i like this podcast and that guy oliver here he's Most of all, keep listening to America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show that's normally live, but just a podcast for now, about opera, period. From the Ravenswood studio right here on the north side of Chicago, I'm your host, George Cedarquist, connecting you via Zoom to co-hosts Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, on the episode... We conclude spring training for your ears with part three of our look at one of Benjamin Britten's most accessible operas, Albert Herring. But first, creative consultant Oliver Camacho goes inside the huddle with Nicholas Tamagna, the American countertenor who recently triumphed in his debut at the Metropolitan Opera. Tamagna describes going from cover cast to starring alongside Joyce DiDonato and Kate Lindsay recording Purcell with Le Poème Harmonique, and what it's like to quarantine in Germany. And then two-minute drill, Anna Netrebko's identity has been stolen. That's coming up towards the end of the show. And of course, we are in our process of documenting all things opera in the time of corona. Are you an employee of the opera world? Are you an artist? Are you an administrator? Are you a fan? How has... Your intersection with opera been affected by COVID-19. We want to hear from you. How are you coping? What does your life look like right now? What does your work look like right now? Just record a voice mumbo, 30 to 60 seconds. Send it to operaboxscore at gmail.com, and we just might include it on our next show. The, The funny thing about there being no sports right now is that we are being blessed with missing the beginning of baseball season. Let's face it, like, the baseball season is way too long as it is, and nothing really starts going until after Memorial Day anyway. So essentially, here in Chicago at least, like, Corona has prevented us from going to watch the Cubs and freeze our butts off 
sitting at Wrigley Field in April. You know, it really is cooler by the lake. All right, let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. New York native Nicholas Tamanya has garnered widespread acclaim for his commanding yet expressive vocal timbre and breathtaking musicianship, as well as superb acting skills and establishing himself as a leading countertenor of his generation. Oliver caught up with Tamanya via Facebook Messenger in Oldenburg, Germany, where he was scheduled to star as the refugee in Jonathan Dove's flight at the Oldenburgish Staatstheater. And they begin their conversation discussing his breakout performance in the Mets HD broadcast of Handel's Agrippina last February. That was a David McVicker production and a star vehicle for Joyce D. Tenato. I had come into the production actually um, having auditioned for uh, to be a cover for the company. I hadn't yet sung for the main stage, uh, for the main casting people. And basically my agent had managed to get me to sing for for cover position. Um, and uh, so I was very excited, of course, for the opportunity to cover. And, you know, and I had a lot of other things in the season, but that was something I was extremely looking forward to. Um, and uh, I didn't realize though what was going to happen because basically when I showed up about a few days before, I found out that there were issues. And um, basically the person that I was supposed to cover um, for various reasons couldn't get to the United States and um, they were trying to work those things out, but it never quite worked out. And so uh, it was just kind of an amazing turn of fate that I was I was brought into the role. And luckily, I was prepared and um, and I had, you know, sung for the first two weeks before they knew what the situation would be for the director and for, you know, uh, so for David and for Harry and everybody in the cast and that I kind of bonded with everyone and, um, and everyone felt that luckily that I deserved to do it. And, you know, of course, talked to, to everyone in the administration when they'd asked about my, you know, how I was in the production and they all agreed that I should do it. And so I was very, just completely honored. And, um, and of course, it was just a wonderful ride from that point on once I knew that it was really mine, and I could own it and not feel like it was going to get taken away from me. Are you at liberty <laughs> and, to say uh, who you were covering? So I was covering, um, but I never really, I never did in this production. No, but because I'm saying, from day you, one, are you at liberty to say who yeah. was the person that you were supposed to be originally in the cast? Yeah, um, so originally it was uh, Andre Nemzer, who oh. has done other things, I believe, at the Met and was involved, I think, maybe even with the competition. Um, but I'm not 100% sure about that. Um, but he had, has a relationship, of course, with the Met in pre prior seasons. And um, so, you know, but it was issues with getting to the United States, okay. something like this. I'm not really at liberty to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, but it was a situation where I had to basically jump in. And, um, but I was, you know, of course, prepared to cover it, but I wasn't necessarily thinking that I was actually going to do it. But the, the great thing is um, I got to do it from day one. So it was really my role from day one. Yeah. And that's that was amazing. Well, so we're, we're talking um, about this show. So we might as well continue along this path. I want to say that I, I want audiences to go look at your website and just to look at photography of... Uh, we have really beautiful photography. You have a really great like sense of style. Uh, and that comb over at Agrippina is not your <laughs> comb over. <laughs> no. 
Because everybody else for the I most actually, part had their hair, you know? <laughs> I actually told, you know, initially, um, very funnily, um, the drawing that we had for this, uh, for me, my original con costume, um, was actually supposed to look a little bit more like a, a kind of, I don't know, it almost looked like Harry Potter, to be honest, the, yeah. the wig that I had initially. And when they did a, a photo of me in the costume with the hair, um, David McVicker, Sir David McVicker was immediately like, no, because this is not going to be what I want. And it wasn't what he had kind of envisioned. And um, so they, so we had to re-envision the whole thing, the whole look, and um, amazingly got this this fantastic look uh, that he had kind of concocted. But of course, my my initial reaction was basically like, David, do you hate me? Like, do you want me <laughs> on my Met debut? Do I really have to be this hideous? But um, but of course, it passed. It, it was totally uh, fitting of the character and. And I think it would have, if I had the other hairstyle, I kind of looked too young, and then it almost made it look like Joyce was robbing the cradle, and like, like there was this weird, you know, um, kind of dynamic there that really isn't what the story's about. And um, and it definitely was so not Chizo. I mean, the the whole character that I created definitely looked like the character they created for me. So, um, but it was fantastic. I mean, David had kind of sculpted that with his team a lot around what I was bringing to in the rehearsals, um, the character. And... And it was a bit different from the earlier version of Agrippino, which um, was done uh, with um, basically a kind of Woody Allen looking character with kind of wild Einstein-y hair um, and uh, with Dominique Wiest playing the part. So it was a very specific kind of uh, voice and character as well, which wasn't really me. Yeah. So luckily, David was was open to this idea that I could kind of created and crafted for me. And from day one, you know, even within the, you know, confines of his vision and what the character is supposed to do and the, and the very specifics of the action, I was able to kind of bring my own way of doing it and, and my own way of singing it, um, which was a unique challenge because I generally don't sing character roles. I mean, that's not really something I've done a lot of. And I don't particularly think of my singing as a character it's voice. It's not a character um, voice. It is not. Which, yeah. And so I had to, but I had to not play it also like it's this beautiful lyrical thing because that was not the character that we were creating. So I had to find a, a way to marry this kind of <laughs> uh, wimpy, effete, sort of strange character who... Um, is definitely very physically slapsticky comical with the way in which I could sing it and still get that across in the voice without sacrificing, you know, some of the, the qualities of my singing that make me who I am. So, you know, it was a it was an interesting marriage that I had to find with it. And luckily, you know, I mean, it came really quickly because I was given that space and I was given that guidance and encouragement from the team. And and I was very quickly able to kind of find my way with it. Um, yeah, there are so many, but it's always there are so many things that I need yeah. to to pivot from from what you just said. But I want to put a pin in one of them. But I want to ask you while we're still on this topic of the physicality of this role: um, is that level of um, sort of body work and uh, you know acting training 
Is that coming from training you had in the U.S., from training you had in Germany? I'm just so curious about because it, it was such a physically specific <laughs> thing you were doing there. And yeah, uh, yeah and I, it really was believable. And it was it really added so much, you know, character to the to the production overall. You know, I came from a musical theater background before I even studied opera. So for me, it was actually theater and acting from a very young age. I, I was doing this from about age 10, 9, 10 years old. So I had done a significant amount of training in my younger years in um, just straight theater uh, and, uh, and also musical theater. Um, and never quite pursued that route, although I did a little bit of it here, here and there, more on a kind of local level than uh, on anything kind of on a grand scale. But, um, but I had quite a lot of training in that. And then as I went through college, I certainly had movement training. And as I went into opera, I, I definitely had some acting training, but it wasn't to the degree that I actually got um, from working in summers uh, where I was teaching voice in summer programs for musical theater and working collaboratively with acting teachers and movement teachers. And actually, I learned a lot in those years of my teaching voice to young students from my co-teachers and, and co-creators of the projects we were doing about space substance, um, movement work, um, body work, you know, a lot of different kind of acting theories. and. Um, and so I got exposed to that kind of in my early 20s. And, and then I went on to study it more in depth on my own. Did you use viewpoints? Um, I'm sorry? Did you use viewpoints? Uh, yes. Viewpoints was a big part of one of the co-teachers uh, who was teaching with, uh, this was the Summer Theater Institute was the name of the summer program. And I used to teach it alongside uh, a couple of teachers who used viewpoints. And so... I, I had some exposure to that, um, even though it really didn't come from my opera training. So I ended up using a lot of that. And, um, and interesting that you kind of point out differences between the U.S. and Europe, for me at least. One thing I picked up on really quickly and was something that was pointed out to me by my agent in my first uh, audition tour in Europe. She said, one thing you have to understand, Nicholas, um, is that especially in Germany, we were talking about because I was auditioning there. She said, there is more of an expectation that you can't just get up there and give a perfectly technical good performance, which I think sometimes the American attitude is more about, is, is definitely on the voice. And I think that's one of the things that we do the best is the training that we get vocally. Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes it comes at the expense of actually making a statement, an artistic statement, um, and also a physical statement about who you are as an artist on stage in an audition scenario. And so I quickly learned from that experience and feedback from my agent, Sarah Stevens, that I had to, you know, really bring more of that to play, even in an audition scenario. Um, and I think that then from that point on, I noticed that that was something that was um, prized more by, especially by European directors. They really wanted that physicality. They wanted you to go more in depth with that sort of thing. And it was already in my DNA. It was already something that I felt was something I wanted to be as an, as an opera singer, was the kind of opera singer that marries the vocal technical demands with more of a traditional, you know, physical acting approach 
and and try to marry those two things you know and i and i think it's very freeing to be honest i think you know at the end of the day if you can learn to physicalize characters in a very specific way while still accomplishing the technical and musical demands of the, the singing it frees your singing in a different way so um I've never found it to be a hindrance. I've only found it to be enhancing. It can be challenging, of course, but I think that it's something that we should all aspire to because it's certainly a lot more interesting on stage. And with the little bit of uh, directing that I've done um, with some small companies and like uh, with Montclair Opera Theater and uh, um, Opera Theater Montclair and with a, a, some smaller things I've done with some colleges and things, I've noticed that that's very much how I like to work because that's what's the most engaging thing um, is to find that balance between the physical movement and the gesture and the body and the, you know, the musical demands. For my audience, I want to highlight a theme uh, that has been emerging through some of these interviews, which is that, you know, the American opera training factory does not give you these skills. And the people who I've interviewed who are some of the most dynamic performers, like yourself, um, Jakob Josef Orlinski, Zachary James, Marisal Montalvo, they are, you know, we're getting work in Europe and they are doing stuff with their body that we don't see American singers usually doing. I mean, unless you're Kate Lindsay, of course. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, no, that's great. And you, I've yeah. already, you've already said so many things, but go on. You, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to stop you. No, um, I, would, I would say just the last little piece of that puzzle is also that as a Baroque singer um, and very early on in my career and my first job that I ever did in Europe uh, was with um, Karlsruhe, with the Händelfestspiele. And I was lucky to work with Benjamin Lazare who was all about gesture, Baroque gesture. And yes. so from a very early standpoint of my career as a countertenor, I was already being immersed in, in a, a tradition of physical theater. And he had really kind of opened my eyes to that whole world and what that, um, what that can bring to your performance, even if you go down the, you know, go down the road and you do a different production and it's not Baroque gesture, it still informs what you Absolutely. do because you think about the way in which you're using your hands or the way in which you're positioned in your body and how you're standing in a very different way if you've had if you've been forced to think about it in this kind of methodical tradition Amen. of theater and yeah. it also and it so, informs all the music you do and like even when you're singing an art song you think about how you look and how you're telling the story with your body yes Absolutely. You know, um, there is a spontaneity, of course, I'm not saying that I plan every single thing down to the letter, but it, it's, it's as if I've, or I've gained a vocabulary of things that I can hold on to, and it creates a kind of coherence to what I'm doing physically on stage, that if I didn't have that exposure and training and experience, I might be flailing a bit to find how to you know, marry the physical demands and the musical demands. So, um, and I've gone on now since that production to do other productions with Baroque Gesture, and that's only enhanced even more working with other people who have different theories or different ways of going about it. Um, it's only enhanced, again, my vocabulary with that. So, um, and it's something that I think we'll never be complete with. And it's something that is also a little bit 
difficult because you can read as many treaties as you want. And, uh, you know, we don't have um, any firsthand accounts to see what it actually looks like. So a lot of it is a bit conjecture, yeah. but it doesn't mean that it's not useful, you know, and that it can't sort of um, percolate different ideas for you or bring things to the fore. So for me, um, it's been a huge part of my physical training is getting this opportunities to do productions that focus with Baroque gesture. We have those drawings of like Caffarelli and Senesino and how they like towered over everybody else on the stage. And like, yeah. I wonder if they really were that tall or if, I don't know, if it was just like a caricature of what that looked yeah, like. Yeah, I mean, we have the, we have the, we have these drawings, we have the treaties, um, we have, you know, maybe secondhand accounts of people talking about people's performances. But, um, you know, of course we don't have video or anything no. to be able no to HD see. No HD broadcast. <laughs> Yeah, so so it does make it a little bit difficult to say there's only one way or this this is this is the way, even though people would like to do that. With most things in Baroque music, that is the case. Um, people would like to put a stamp on it and say this is the way, and there's no other way. But the truth is, you know, none of us know a hundred percent every detail. Yeah, <laughs> and um, you know, but we we spend our whole careers studying that so that we can become more knowledgeable and have as much um, background and as much input from our predecessors as possible to create the, the most, uh, you know, I, I want to say authentic, but in, in the sense that it's real, like that it's coming from someplace musically, emotionally, physically, that a human being understands, you know, not in the sense that it has to be historically accurate because that's interesting, but it's not all. So, um, so you've said a lot of things already that I want to pivot to, and one of them was talking about a singer like Dominique Vies, um, who is a singer I love and who is so French to me. And like you hear, I forget the name, I think <laughs> that, uh, ensemble Clément Jeanquin or something like that, and um, yeah, that sound that he makes is just you cannot ever not know that it's him, you know. Um, and oh, of course. Yeah. You know, in a way, it sort of defined, uh, you know, sort of like what does a countertenor do in France, you know? Um, <laughs> so you recently had a chance to work with a group that I'm crazy about, um, Le Poème Harmonique, which is led by Vincent Dumestre, who mm -hmm. is a theorbo player and sort of is, you know, came onto the scene exploring, you know, the bridge between Renaissance French music and the early Baroque, um, and then eventually began to do like little comedy ballets by Lully. And he's at the point now where he's staging full operas of Lully. And um, it's just really been a, a, a very interesting trajectory for that ensemble. But the heart and soul of what he does is, you know, continual work uh, and really detailed, beautiful continual work with singers. Can you talk to me about a couple of things about getting that type of work in Europe, what are the expectations? Uh, I mean, they know you're American, but what what did you have to do for your own singing to adapt to what they're doing, uh, what you learned from it? And um, yeah, just that the whole experience of making that recording even with uh, Le Poire Marmonique of, of personal funeral odes and welcome yeah, songs. Yeah, of course. Um, well, so interestingly, the way I got connected to them was actually through the production of Ricardo Primo that we did in Karlsruhe. And um, at the time, somebody uh, this, uh, who was involved with the organization, Vincent Agresh, 
um, had heard me in Kazwa and they were doing a production of Dido and Aeneas the next season and they had lost their spirit <laughs> uh, for that production and it was coming up fairly quickly and they needed to get somebody in and he loved me and I was working with uh, Claire Le Filiatre who's very much connected to Le Poème uh, and as well as um, uh, Benjamin Lazare had directed the uh, Bourgeois Gentilhomme that's on DVD oh, from them. Love that. Yeah, so, and, and I had been just working on this Ricardo Primo with Benjamin. So uh, I had been working kind of within their circle already with all these these people that had heard me. So they all put me on to Vincent Dumest. Um, and uh, they asked me immediately if I would do this. You know, of course, uh, Spirit's a very small role. Um, you have like uh, just a couple of lines in the, in the middle of it. And... Um, but it was an amazing experience to get to, to, to work with them because, um, you know, immediately I got exposed to a, a musical world, a, a sonority that I think is at once very specifically French, but also very specifically Vincent and his group. Um, and I hadn't had that exposure yet. I mean, I was more of an Italianate singer. I really had done mostly Handel up to that point. And, and you have to remember, too, I had kind of become a countertenor very late. I was about 20, 2008, 2009 was my first forays into it. And I, and I, got, uh, do, I got my first job doing Orfeo and Gluck Orfeo in Memphis. Um, so now we're fast forwarding to about 2014. Um, so I'm still like figuring out my way in this world of world music and being a countertenor. And so he was actually a very huge influence on me in the beginning because I hadn't really had somebody that steeped in it and in, in, in such a specific arena of Baroque music and in a, a certain kind of style. And the one thing I would say with him that became very apparent is because he is, uh, you know, a theorist and, and a plucked string instrumentalist, and he comes at everything from that continual perspective, which very much hangs itself on the words um, the intonation of the of the line in the sense of where is it going, where's the importance of the line. And there was a certain kind of phrasing language that he uses that is very particularly French, but he has a great way of dragging it out of you when it's not a language that you're used to speaking. And it did take a bit for me to kind of learn this more I would say the biggest biggest influence in his music is this sort of French anegal feeling mm -hmm. of um, which you can employ you know, in Purcell very easily, which which works so well in Purcell, yeah. obviously, and that's why he wanted to kind of branch out into that repertoire a bit. But um, you know, but it was certainly not something that I had a lot of experience doing in in Handel. So you know, um, even though it. You know, and, and of course, it was something very new to me, this whole Baroque world. So I was learning the language of it. And um, I just had an instrument that worked <laughs> and had a tone quality. And I could and I was quick study and I could kind of learn. And I had all this acting background and I was good on stage. So it was marrying some of these other skills to that that I needed to learn. And and so I heard music in a different way after working with him. Um, just the way music is structured, the way... Uh, a phrase is structured, how you kind of with the breath and with the, the the vibrato and everything kind of direct the line in a certain way 
to a certain end, whatever that is. And there is a kind of organic quality to the way he he does that. He doesn't, even when you hear him speaking with the other musicians, it's not a, a lot of like them writing a bunch of stuff in and you do this, you do that, you on this measure, we do this. There's none of that. It's It's just sort of something that they do organically, naturally together. They breathe as an organism. And you have to learn a bit what that is. And that's something very much part of the Baroque idiom is learning how to make music on that level, how to um, kind of work on a symbiotic feeling kind of level and, and sense people's energies and give the right uh, cues to, you know, to your fellow uh, playmates uh, Use your as to what it is everybody. that you're trying to do. Hmm? Use your nostrils. Make that noise. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So you know these are li- these kinds of things that um, are so important that you kind of that's not something that really anybody teaches you. You have to learn that, and and you know and I and I kind of did you know just by being amongst these people and watching them and observing them and having this wonderful kind of mentorship of of. Um, of Vincent, and he saw great potential in me, which is why, you know, he certainly invited me for other productions, which was amazing. these wonderful projects together um of course there's sort of a limit to what i'll be able to do with them just because they mostly do a lot of french mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that is their focus um and rightly so i mean that's what they they really have the the, the tonal world um uh, in such a special way they can present that um and i and i get why that that makes sense for them but um you know, I think they're trying trying different things here and there, but they're always going to kind of go back to that because that's their bread and butter. Yeah. And, um, you know, and that's uh, that's beautiful. I wish I wish there was more things for me to do. And but this it is its own. It is its own art form, French Baroque opera, and it's and it's a very specific idiom. And it's something that as much as I love it, I also know. There are a lot of people who've been steeped in it for, for so long and it's their craft and it's what they do well. And I'm not going to try to step into something that it's not really me, you know. Right. So, um, so I, you know, I've kind of, I've done a little bit of things here and there in that idiom, but mostly I stick to what I know, which is <laughs> doing Italian uh, Baroque opera, most, a lot of high opera, right. or high Baroque opera. So, I mean, and and brief- that's, yeah, that's what my voice does. Briefly, um, 
can you just talk to us about, did you have a fest contract at Karlsruhe? No, I didn't have a fest contract. It was um, just with the Händel Festspiele okay. for that season and uh, was renewed for the Wiederaufnahme, of course. And we did that uh, reprise the next season. Um, yeah. Then um, I didn't come back. I haven't been back to Karlsruhe since then. But um, but I've been do doing the other festivals. I'll be in Göttingen in a couple seasons. I've been in Halle last year. I was supposed to be in it this year. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. Um, so we don't have yet, you know, uh, we don't know yet of a company that is giving fest contracts to countertenors. Uh, there was one not that long ago in Germany. I can't remember where now off the top of my head, but there was a fest contract. It's very rare just because the repertoire, um, most houses are not going to produce enough opera within a season to require to have a fest contract. Yeah. Um, it's just, yeah, you know, and honestly, as as a counter tenor and just speaking as a freelance artist, even though in this moment it's a horrible thing to be in general, it, it gives you a certain kind of freedom and and a certain kind of um, financial uh, financially. It's it's better for you as a guest usually, um, but you don't have the stability of, of a fest contract and you don't have maybe the. Um, the artistic and the and the financial stability that you would have if you were a fest singer, but uh, it's it's still an amazing thing to um, get to do these kind of guest contracts and and uh, come in and be a part of these various productions. Um, there are a few theaters though where I've come back a couple of times, um, so then there's a feeling almost of that because I've worked with the companies a few times. And so I know all of the fest singers and there's a bit more of a family feeling there. Um, one in particular is this theater where I'm at now in Oldenburg. Um, Cause I did see it away there for so long. And then they hired me to do flight this season and they've hired me for next season to do Rotolinda. Now next season will be flight and Rotolinda. Um, Are you singing so Bertarido in, in Rotolinda? I'm singing Bertarido. Yeah. So, um, so next season will be quite a lot in Oldenburg <laughs> so because cool. they they basically put both now both productions into the same season. Now that we're talking so, about Germany, can we just discuss a little bit because we are nearing the end of our time together? Mm -hmm. Can we discuss about what the reaction? I mean, well, how the support is for artists where you are? Sure. I mean, of course, I'm sure you know. Um, there's been a huge uh, government support, which has been amazing. Um, you know, Germany has this fest system and like i said you know as a freelance artist generally you're not protected in the same way that a fest artist is and uh, one of the amazing things about germany is that there are so many fest positions because there are so many theaters and these are you know government um, state funded theaters that sort of protect people's livelihood as an artist um Germany is kind of leading in that, you know, in terms of all the places in the world, uh, especially in Europe, it's it's really one of the best places to be an artist because of that, um, you know. And in this moment, those people are are going to fare better, obviously. But the German government has still seen it necessary to um, put together this package to give uh, money to even us freelancers who don't have those same typical protections because this is so out of 
the realm of the norm, you know, and um, they 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 see the necessity and the value in protecting us. So there's a value here that, that they place on artists that um, it's hard to match elsewhere in the world. And I I think it's it's cultural for sure. I mean, it's part of their heritage. You want to say that, but it's also um the fact that one of the major things i think that makes germany stand out is that after the war they had they weren't really able to focus money into a, a giant you know industrial military complex that was not allowed and they started focusing their money on rebuilding the nation but also then as time went on funneling money into social programs various kinds of social programs but one being very much so the protection and the and the support and the proliferation of arts in germany and so that's been a strong tradition for many generations now and um and i think that that's that was there before the war of course but after the war it even enabled it further in terms of financially being able to support it and I think that that's why we find ourselves at this point in in the history of our world having such a strong um, support here in Germany as artists. And um, luckily, the audiences are still, you know, on the whole, quite strong here. Um, of course, like everywhere, we all talk about the, the you know, the dwindling um, public or the the kind of rising average age of the public, but. I have to say, in general, in Germany, I've come across uh, a much wider sort of demographic of people that come and enjoy opera, or even when speaking to somebody outside of the theater, there's a general sense that people have more education or they have had more exposure to it. Um, and it's not like some foreign elitist thing here. So, you know, um, theater, art, dance, music, um, and including within music opera is something that's much that plays a big part in the pride of of Germany and um, their their support. So I I feel very lucky to have made my career starting here um, more than I did in the U.S. And of course I think it brings something to what I bring back when I get to work at places say like the Met, which yeah. is amazing. But I also had a lot of time honing my craft in in a in a different environment with different stakes and different expectations, which made it so that when I came to that position to be at the Met this this year, it didn't feel like a daunting thing. I mean, it felt like like okay, I'm ready. Like I'm ready to take this on. I think that's and, what the audience sense because that's what I sense for sure. It's like, who is this guy? How did he come so fully formed? Because you see a lot of these Met HD broadcasts where it's clearly that person's first time, and they understand the you know the reach that they're suddenly they suddenly have, and they don't give what they I know that they could give. That's why they got that job. They did not deliver in that opportunity, and so that's that yeah. really floored me watching your performance and oh, how, how complete it was and how frankly how beautifully sung it was and that is a given oh. that's a given in most cases but in that circumstance you know hd um joyce di donato kate Lindsay, like just completely yeah. tearing up the scenery and for you to come into that and to hold your own and to actually make such a strong impression that's something to really celebrate oh thank you 
And I want to say one thing about my castmates. They all from day one were just amazing to work with. And they they encouraged and they didn't, it always felt like we were playing off one another and able to kind of bring our ideas and and say, hey, can we try this? And there was never this feeling of like separation between us. And that's why I think this production felt so coherent um, was because there was a team sensibility about it. And um, with with everything from from the top down, from the from the artistic team to to the singers to the to the um, amazing supers on stage and the dancers and uh, there was always a feeling that we were creating something together and that there even with someone as amazing as Joyce DiDonato, she is never ever uh, you never feel when you're working with her that she, like you know, that you're not part of on a level team with her. You know, she always makes you feel like you have value and input and like she could so easily be, you know, she's the star vehicle, but she's never like that. She's an amazing colleague and um, Kate Lindsay as well. Um, all of them are incredibly sweet and in a way humble, but they own what they do. You know, it's not it's not a humbleness in a in kind of fake way or in a in a way that makes you question like, you know, how can they possibly be so strong an artist if they're you know so um, self-deprecating or humble or whatever? Mm-hmm. But they they just naturally are authentic human beings, and that's what makes the performances stand out because they come from it from a human place. And I think if we can bring more of that humanity to the stage which I know is a big part of Joyce's mission in in her career, um, I think we stand the chance of making opera such an attractive thing to the rest of the world that we won't have these questions of, you know, why is, uh, you know, where is opera going or what do we have to do to make it uh, attractive? Because I think it is attractive. It's just a matter of bringing the right elements to it to make it come alive. And when you have the right forces, like, in this particular instance and like in many productions i've had the great fortune to be in with wonderful people and amazing artists that can be created and it's that's the whole reason we do it you know and to be honest the performances are amazing and you want that that feeling from the audience and it definitely kicks everything up a notch but if you don't have it from day one in the rehearsal room and that feeling of creation and um, constant new ideas coming in, then it's that's you know that's stagnating, and I that's not the career I want. So I always seek that, even in even in a situation where it might be more difficult to draw it out, I try to bring that to the work that I do because that's what keeps me in the game, um, and I think it's what keeps most people in the game, especially um, the, the amazing artists that we're talking about. Let's do some spring training for your ears. All right, so we are in the final segment of our getting to know Albert Herring spring training for your ears. And I thought that I'd give our audience uh, a chance to become acquainted with this show another way besides Spotify, because maybe Spotify is uh, exclusive to some of you. Excluding? Exclusive? Um, You know what I'm saying? Um, so there is actually a production on YouTube and on other uh, video streaming platforms from 1985. It's a performance from uh, Glyndebourne Festival, and it's the Peter Hall production conducted by Bernard Heitink with the London Philharmonic Orchestra that stars 
John Graham Hall as Albert Herring with a cast that includes Patricia Johnson, Felicity Palmer, Elizabeth Gale, uh, Richard Van Allen, Alan Opie, and Gene Rigby. So um, we're going to use excerpts from that video today. And it's a great production, and it looks just like every production of Albert Herring does. I don't know what it is about this opera, because maybe because it's so specific in its setting that all productions of the show seem to look exactly alike. I don't know. I don't know if it needs to be modernized or if there's something we can do in the future when we're out of quarantine to think about how to reconceptualize this opera. But at any rate... And with- what was interesting about this production also was that Glyndebourne is where Albert Herring premiered, for those of you who don't remember that little tidbit from two weeks ago. Uh, so this was like a, this was a revival, not, not a revival of the original production, but like a coming home of this opera four decades later and with uh, different opinions about the legacy of Benjamin Britten. So we uh, left Act Two with Albert um, coming home from his... Uh, making celebration and being recovering from his drunkness and um, having the realization that Nancy wasn't into him, but in fact she pitied him. And it sort of sparked this, you know, desire for Albert Herring to become a man and to like escape and to do something crazy. And the next day he's been missing and the store is supposed to open and it's probably very early in the morning and he has not, you know, he's not been home and everybody's worried about him. And the opening of the act uh, almost begins with a aria by Nancy. It's the first time we actually get to have Nancy alone. And she sings this aria that's broken up into three stanzas. And each stanza has interjections, uh, is separated by interjections from the mayor, from children, from Sid. But it's a really great, you know, sort of lament aria. And we're going to hear... Uh, Gene Rigby singing the last stanza. singing from Gene Rigby, another singer who I probably would have never encountered except for this production. She stares right into the camera. <laughs> it's great. That is my nightmare. <laughs> she probably didn't know the camera was there. But great diction. <laughs> and uh, yeah, lot, lots of tone. This is, I don't know if you're a mezzo and you are looking for something, you know, some Britain thing to audition with. Most people, I think, use the Raper Lucretia but uh, this is a very similar tessitura and will show off your low notes. And, um, yeah, it's in three stanzas. You could just sing one and then call it quits. But I don't know. I'm not a mezzo. What you're going to do with that? (laughs) Um, So the next set piece is the lament of Mrs. Herring. And this is finally a moment for us to sort of empathize with this character who up till now has sort of been, like, a villain. A harpy. Yeah, a villain in the show. Um, and she, it seems like she's very sincere about, you know, having potentially lost him. 
and being very worried. And the music, it feels very tragic. But Britain adds uh, the oboe um, uh, octave above the line of Mrs. Herring, and it just sounds mocking because uh, to have that octave separation just creates this sort of comedy. And I think that's, you know, Britain's clue to us that don't, you know, don't take this music too seriously, even though it sounds very, you know, tragic. This is a comedy. And, um, yeah, I don't, I mean, if you subtract the oboe, maybe it can be much more sad. But let's hear Patricia Kern uh, singing the end of this lament. Uh, she's asked Nancy to go find a picture of Albert on the mantle because she has to give a picture to the police because they need to be able to identify him. And this is what she says when she sees the picture. and then eventually Mrs. Woodworth, Woodsworth and the vicar. In this case, Mrs. Woodsworth is sung by Elizabeth Gale and the vicar, Derek Hammond Stroud. And to me, it feels like another example of something we had uh, in the first act where we have this ensemble that really tells the story um, to the audience as a whole. But when you think about each individual line as a, as a singer, as a vocal line, as a melodic line, how difficult is it to try to find your place in those harmonies? Because everybody seems to be singing in a different key. Ashley, do you want to comment? Uh, on they that? are. <laughs> I'm sorry, continue. No, no, I mean, you, you sang Mrs. Woodsworth, so do you remember what it was like to try to line up that quartet in coachings and whatnot? Uh, yeah, it was incredibly challenging. I, I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, you know, especially when we get to these places where you know, there it's it's almost basically you've got every every character in that moment really trying to express some very specific thought. And you know, the only way to learn it and perform it and to get through it is to memorize your own part, forget anything else is happening around you, and just hold on for dear life. Uh so you know, usually when I'm thinking and when I'm learning roles, I'm like, okay. So my part interacts with this character and this is the note. And I need to make sure that when we get to this measure, we're in tune and we're lined up. You can't do 
any of that with this, even though it sounds beautiful and it's all put together from a, from a music learning and a music performing standpoint, you can't pay attention to anything else that is happening around you. So this, a lot happens in this scene, which is the last act of the opera. And, um, you know, they're looking for him. The police are out there looking for him. And soon, I forget, it's the superintendent or the police, the police chief comes in with the... Uh, that's, that's the same person. Oh, yeah. <laughs> with, with the smashed up May crown that was given to Albert at the, at the party. And Such the, symbolism. And the <laughs> music that Britain uses here, to me, is so evocative of like one of those Shostakovich symphonies that has a snare drum in it. And the rhythm feels like sort of like the ritual dance from the Rite of Spring. And I don't know if audiences in 19, well, I forget, 46, when this was premiered, would have gotten those references um, because that music was fresher in their ears. But um, it definitely is drawing on these contemporaneous masterpieces. So let's hear just a little bit of that, and maybe Matt can suss out some of those details for us, because that's not my forte. That was Patricia Kern, uh, who sang the lament of uh, Albert Herring's mother and who gave the primal scream. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, like, it actually is, if it wasn't a comic opera, that was very good for, like, scary music that has, like, this dramatic tension and then this primal wail. (laughs) Yeah, it has that, like, brutalism aspect of it. It does. It's very raw and it's dissonant, but it's also empty. Yeah. Um, because there's there's all this empty space and the way that he uses the percussion is really harsh. Um, and there's there's like a couple Shostakovich symphonies where he uses a snare drum like as to add commentary. So, and especially Weston would be so thrilled that we were revisiting the friendship of Britain and Shostakovich. <laughs> um, it, uh, the most famous example of when Shostakovich did that is in the first movement of the Leningrad Symphony, which is his seventh symphony, uh, which is like depicting the invasion of the Nazi troops into St. Petersburg. Uh, And there's this snare drum ostinato that goes out through the whole repeated, repeated uh, melodic cells, and it gets more and more angry and more and more brutal and faster and faster and just crazier and crazier. So I wouldn't be surprised if that was uh, a quotation. We'll have to look at the timelines of some of that stuff because we might be early or late for some of that. But at any rate, well, you get the idea especially if you like symphonic music, which is not my area of expertise. Um, Then we have what is considered to be the big set piece of the entire act, um, the threnody. 
And threnody is not a word we encounter in everyday <laughs> music, but it is. Ear penderecki, about it. <laughs> we, yeah, that, that's the one. Yeah, we are talking about a morning hymn, not a morning like good morning, but like morning hymn, or like a wailing song. That's what a threnody is. Um, and I have to say that, like studying British music, you learn all of these words, like expostulation and epicedium and epithalamium, <laughs> which Purcell wrote all of those. Um, but yeah, a threnody is a song for mourning, and it sort of, to me, feels like when you go to, like, a wedding, and there's, like, some jam, and everybody, like, gets in a line, and everybody gets, like, their solo, but everybody's, like, basically doing the same dance, but then somebody jumps into the circle and has their little improv moment. That's what this feels like, except it's not happy. <laughs> so, so we're going to hear, like... This like the saddest soul train ever. Yeah, we're going to hear this drone of the chorus. I've already, actually, we're going to go right to some of the solos. And then we'll hear various interjections from the characters, beginning with the vicar, followed by Nancy. Uh, then we'll hear the mayor, uh, a tenor. His name is Alexander Oliver. And finally, we'll hear a bit of Patricia Johnson as Lady Billows. Operatically, I think that what this might be drawing on is like those big end of act ensembles from Verdi and Italian opera, those yes. uh, those uh, concertado scenes yes. where everyone is just standing around and wailing about what happened, like literally and and emotionally wailing about how awful this development has been, and time just kind of stops and it gets denser and denser, and it it's supposed to just kind of become overwhelming for the audience, uh, and it sonically the the music is definitely foreshadowing bits and pieces of the war requiem which would be written um in the next decade either i can't remember if it was in the 50s or 60s but this is this definitely predates it um but with that there and there's that just like britain twist that kind of like vinegar tang that he stirs into the operatic tradition yeah you're so right it makes me think of uh in traviata after alfredo throws the money at her and then she like collapses. <laughs> yeah, I was the Macbeth was the one that I that came to mind for me right after they find a dead king, and everyone's just like, "Oh my goodness!" And Lady Macbeth is playing it off wonderfully there, but not so much later. So the opera's conclusion, uh, it feels like this opera could end after the Threnody. Like this is, you know, goodbye curtain down. Albert Herring is dead. 
But just as the thread of D finishes, I love saying that word now, um, Albert Herring enters and um, he's just like, what? <laughs> what did I miss? So let's hear a little bit of that. And once again, in this recording or in this production, Albert Herring was sung by John Graham Hall. <laughs> Reminds me so much of, <laughs> of that. Um, I wouldn't eat them peas of hern from Susanna. <laughs> I wouldn't teach them peas of hern. <laughs> but teach, it's a- spelled T E C H in the libretto. Fun fact about the opera Susanna. Oh, <laughs> um, what's so great about this is that you know we have this great ensemble that feels like you know Britain at its most tragic best, and then. On the turn of a dime, it becomes a comedy again, and Lady Billows is the first person to like exclaim, "Like, what have you done?" and like making it all about her <laughs> again. And so everybody goes back to being their own character. And I mean, um, hasn't it always been all about Lady Billows? Like for the last two and a half hours. For Lady Billows, it has for sure. <laughs> and Florence. Oh, good point. Good point. So. Like I said before, this opera does, I mean, this is really the whole drama of the opera. You know, Albert Herring finds himself, uh, disappoints his family and his whatever, the people, the community. But what really happens is this transformation of this character. And uh, let's just listen to what it sounds like when Albert Herring sort of tells off everybody and just says, you know what, I did this, I had a good time, now leave me alone. Uh, Once again, here is... I should know his name, I've already said it like three times, uh, John Graham Hall uh, as Albert Herring telling off everybody at the grocery store. How could you do it? How could you? Do Yes, 
washed me down and rained me in, did up my institute safety pins, kept me wrapped in cotton wool, measured my life by a 12 inch rule, protected me with such devotion, my only way out was a wild explosion. It was a much fun. strings are in unison with him and his music becomes a lot more melodic and easy and in a way sort of resembles uh sid's you know sing-songiness uh of just like sort of an easy you know attitude and so he's undergone this transformation and it also is reflected in his music and i have to say that it reminds me of cozy fantute and how um you know dorabella for example uh hello yeah, it's uh, it's Matt coming back into the room, but he's here now. <laughs> Hi, my internet crapped out on me. <laughs> it, it reminds me of how uh, in Cosi Fantute, how Dorabella goes from being this opera seria character when she sings Magne Peccabili to having this more pastoral aria in the second act, which is closer in character to Despina, or how Guglielmo in the same opera, you know, begins being just as, uh, you know, virtue-loving as Ferrando and romantic uh, and ardent to sounding a little bit more like Don Alfonso by the end of the opera, you know, with that cynicism. This is why, once again, I feel like I can really get into Britain through an opera, like I can enter the realm of Britain through an opera like this because it has some of these same parallels. I don't know if there's anything else, Matt or Ashley, you, you want to say about the finale of this opera? And the transformation. And, well, Oliver, what, what backs that interpretation up for me is the fact that Benjamin Britten obviously would have noticed those two. Right. You know, as someone who was such a scholar uh, and such a really wry interpreter of others' music as well as his own, like, that seems really plausible to me. Well, and I also think that, you know, first of all, I really like that parallel of of Cozy. Um, you mentioned, you know, his, his music's a little more like Sid's. I think in some ways it's, um, it's even more impactful than Sid's, uh, depending on who your Albert is and depending on how it's directed, your Albert can get really snarly here. Uh, and, and it sounds even more menacing and, and sinister and more like the actual emotion that 
you know, is, is being portrayed by the peanut gallery because they're just so aghast of his awful behavior. Um, and it's, you know, that kind of happens with, you know, when you have this, pardon the description, but like virginal character who ends up getting sullied by like the, the wiles of the world, they always end off worse than their bad influence was. And I think musically that can happen here too. So one more thing that um, the librettist gives to us is the um, interactions between Albert and the children. And we haven't really been focusing on it, focusing on it that much, but these kids have been a nuisance to him and you know are always in the store, like, you know, stealing fruit and stuff like that and just getting, you know, in his hair. And uh, the music after, at the, at the end, of the end of the opera, after everybody leaves and the kids come in and they're suddenly scared of him and there's suddenly this music that draws a line between them. Like he's, he became an adult and now they sort of fear his authority. And there's like just this little moment of like 10 seconds of like tension when the kids are in the store and he's like staring them down and it feels like he could like just go boo, you know, and they'd be so scared. But instead he says, here, have a peach, you know. And how many things does that mean? <laughs> a peach. <laughs> Especially what we learned about peaches from earlier in this opera and from- where it is. <laughs> Quite a sexy peach duet. Yeah, and from Call Me By Your Name, if you saw that. So anyway, so it is a comedy, and it ends with lots of fun and with Albert taking his smashed uh, May crown king, May king crown, and I think he throws it into the audience, or he at least throws it against the wall or something like that. So, And thus ends his virginity. And our segment <laughs> on um, Albert Herring. We hope that you can get into this opera maybe you can watch this video maybe the next time your local conservatory is putting it on you will venture out and see it and enjoy it because now you know more about it than most people do This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in opera land this week. Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti announced that sporting events and concerts may not resume until 2021 due to the coronavirus. In an interview with CNN, Garcetti said, It's difficult to imagine us getting together in the thousands anytime soon, so I think we should be prepared for that this year. If Garcetti is right, this could affect the 2020-2021 seasons of the Los Angeles Philharmonic and the L.A. Opera among other companies in the city. Singers, this one's for you. Ellie Ameling has created a series of YouTube tutorials called Some Thoughts on the Heart of Art Song, which was filmed earlier this year at her home in the Netherlands. The project captures the beloved soprano's interpretive ideas with her trademark high standards and directness as one of the world's leading proponents of art song. Find a link to the series on our website. The Dallas Opera is launching the TDO Network, a new online weekly slate of shows hosted on the company's official Facebook and YouTube channels. Programs include Hashtag Ask Maestro with conductor Emmanuel Villon and Is a Coachings with Isabel Leonard. 
Co-founder of Opera Wire, David. Co-founders of Opera Wire, David and Francisco Salazar, are also getting into the mix with a rundown of the major headlines of the past week called The News. I guess the name Two Minute Drill was already taken. Facing estimated losses of more than $10.2 million due to the coronavirus, the Boston Symphony Orchestra announced a series of cost containment measures, including temporary furloughs for 70 full-time staff members and 25% salary reductions for its orchestra members through the end of August. In a press release, the BSO said the measures would only address a fraction of the losses the organization has incurred, but hopes that the moves will help ensure the future of its 139-year legacy. In Brandon Keith Brown's recent article for The Medium, the conductor and author describes how society categorizes musicians as non-essential workers in a time of crisis. A noted social justice advocate, Brown also reminds us not to use the pandemic as an excuse to exclude the cultural repertoires and narratives of those marginalized by the classical music industry. A link to the article, Out of Quarters and the Music Has Stopped, can be found on the show notes for this week's episode on operaboxscore.com. Fake news alert, don't stop until the miracle happens, is a quote from a singer named Sonia Vargas in an extended campaign video for a product called Lipo Loop. The confusing video shows four minutes of performance footage of Anna Trepko supposedly suffering from the pain and weight gain caused by wearing high heels. As of April 20th, the six-minute ad is still running on Facebook. If Facebook can't recognize a deepfake Anna Trepko, how does that bode for the 2020 presidential campaign? Not to be outdone by other companies streaming original content during the stay-at-home order, the Dresden Semper Opera has released a trio from Mozart's Die Quarantflöte, starring Renee Popp as Erastro, Camilla Nyland as Pamina, and Klaus Florian Vogt as Tamino, with pianist Jobst Schneiderat. Soll ich dich In the words of Zarastro, wir sehen uns wieder. We will meet again. In a video released last week, Tomarts Wulin, the general and artistic director of Atlanta Opera, gives a company update which includes a reminder about how Atlanta Opera's costume shops pivoted to making face masks, how the productions from their current season are being rescheduled, and the company's financial plan for continuing to support their artists. It's a great piece of PR that nonetheless feels authentic and honest about what can be done in the crisis and thus deserves to be amplified by us on Opera Box Score. Search for an update from the Atlanta Opera on Vimeo. Exit stage right, Slovenian-born conductor and esteemed professor Maximilian Cencic has passed away following a prolonged illness at age 68. Cencic served as a staff conductor with the Vienna State Opera from 1991 until his retirement in 2014. Cencic was also the father of the internationally renowned countertenor Max Emanuel Cencic. Opera Maine is among the first to report the death of Ellen Chickering on April 19th after a valiant fight against cancer. The soprano sang extensively in the New England area, including a long partnership with Boston Academy of Music. She recently served as professor of voice at University of Southern Maine. Her numerous roles included Amelia in Balo and Mascara and the title role in Vanessa. 
And on this day, April 13th in 1903, was the birth of German baritone Josef Hermann. In 1904, the first performance of Camille Erlanger's Le Fils de l'Etoile in Paris. In 1941, the birth of the Canadian tenor Paul Fry. In 1943, it was the birthday of Sir John Elliot Gardner in Oxford. And in 1961, the FCC approved FM stereo broadcasting, which stimulated the classical and easy listening radio formats. And that's your two-minute drill. performance of Un Ballon Mascara from the Boston Academy of Music. And of course, you can get, call us when we get back on air in future episodes, or uh, email us at operaboxscore at gmail.com. Um, so Ellen Chickering, it's one of those singers that I didn't really know who she was, but then you like do a little bit of research and you realize, wow, there are so many great singers out there that we have never heard of who nevertheless serve their particular communities and, you know, have that balls-to-the-walls type of voice that is perfect for something like Amelia in, in Ballo and Mascara, which is one of my favorite operas. Had you ever heard of her, guys? No, this was my first, uh, this was my first exposure to her. And it's so true. There are these, like, there are these singers that, like, I encountered somewhere along the way and I became obsessed with. And I kept thinking, like, this voice, this voice is going to be a star. And then, a couple of days ago, I was thinking about someone that I had, whose instrument I'd fallen in love with like 12 years ago. And I Googled her because I was like, clearly she's like, you know, she's singing in German houses now. No, she's like a fundraiser for an arts organization in New York City. And I'm like, but tell me you still sing. Yeah. Yeah, I'd never heard of her either, but that it, that's quite a clip. Yeah. It, and- it's too bad that she, uh, that she wasn't able to perform at, at like the, the A-level houses because that is, sounds yeah. like an A-level voice from just a couple seconds. Well, if you keep looking, yeah, for sure. if you keep looking on YouTube, you'll find her singing "Do Not Utter a Word" from Vanessa, and it's delicious. So, if you have time for that, amongst the other things you're listening to these days, so um, it was inevitable that I, I think after all the you know panel discussion, we even talked about this last week, and all the scientists that uh, maybe fall of 2020 is not really a thing for classical music. Remains to be seen, but I'm already thinking myself of how I'm going to strategize next summer if I'm going to commit to doing certain things which are invariably going to be canceled. So it's pretty depressing. Yeah, we're, we're definitely seeing people floating that to start to, start to get peop- the general public prepared to uh, keep calm and carry on. Agreed. Um, I do have to come in with a mild correction um, on the mayor of Los Angeles, who I think had the right idea. Uh, he actually goes by Garcetti instead of Garcetti, but I yeah. love how he fancified it. I thought it was really great, but I know it's Garcetti because I have watched an insane amount of OJ documentaries. I going to say that too. <laughs> His father, Gil Garcetti, is, he, he played a pivotal role in those storylines. So I heard he was, was, he was the DA back in the early the, 90s. Yeah, the LADA. Was that the one that uh, what's his name, David Schirmer played? No, not Robert Kardashian. Uh, He's only in it for a second. He's Sarah Paulson and uh, Sarah Paulson's boss, Marsha Marsha Clark's boss. I see. Um, Yeah. 
So that's an opera I want to see, by the by. Marsha Clark, the opera. That's what I want to see. The uh, I'm sorry, I'm making a little bit of noise here because I, I, your levels all of a sudden got hot. It's my bad. I'm just going to turn you down a little bit, you guys. Oh, um, thank you. So, thank you. I feel better now. Yes, I, you were getting too hot. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you guys listened to The Daily this morning, but you know we're recording this on Monday the 20th, and the New York Times Daily podcast today was so depressing. It was uh, Donald McNeil Jr., the uh, health and science reporter, talking mm-hmm. about what really we'll, we'll need to do to like begin to have society again and how. Yeah, I saw that that's what today's episode, Monday's episode of The Daily is about, and I cannot listen to it yet. And he's been right about so many things, <laughs> so I'm, I'm inclined to believe him. But moving on, uh, the Dallas Opera is moving their... Uh, focus to online content. And it's pretty interesting, I think, to have, you know, basically an entire channel's worth of shows of different types of things, coachings and, you know, Ask Me Anythings and news. And there's probably some fun content out there as well. Uh, I think not a bad idea, especially if you can rope in some artists like Isabel Leonard and Emmanuel Villon. I hope they've got some good questions lined up in advance. I, I've learned that about moderating Q&As is you really need a, you, you definitely want a, a bench of questions that you can pull from if you have a particularly shy online group. Yeah. Maybe they can get some kids who are particularly bouncing off the walls. Well, <laughs> I'm sure the gays <laughs> will have plenty of questions, so. Oh, yeah. And, and me. I also have plenty of questions. I mean, but good job on Dallas for for realizing, like, look, this is what we have. This is what we can do. This is where and how people are learning. So let's just combine these things. We'll give our effort. We'll put it in the medium that students are having to use for everything now. So I think it's the content looks cool. I mean, I think I, I'm probably going to be digging into that shortly in the copious amounts of free time that I have. Especially I, considering the alternative is just sitting on your hands and hoping that in two years you'll be able to reopen. Like, that's not workable right, for anyone. It wasn't yeah. working for New York City Opera, and it won't be workable for anyone else now, 15 years later. So, oh, RIP NYC. I know. Well, along those lines, um, the Emily Emily Ameling tutorials there it is. are something that I, as soon as I have time, uh, after I watch Zachary James's uh, <laughs> Billy Butt, all the other things that I've lined up for myself, and this, and the oh, I forgot about the gala this Saturday, the Met Gala from home. Um, yeah, I would definitely just the snooping gala. I mean, I'm crazy about Ellie Omling, and uh, she's one of those singers that, like, maybe people who don't listen to Art Song have never heard of her or don't really know what she means to us. But for anybody who, you know, went to a conservatory program or, a, you know, a, a voice program that took themselves seriously with Art Song repertoire, everybody knows that Ellie Omling is, like, the OG. Yeah, and if you're looking for her on complete opera recordings, you're, like, really not going to find her anywhere. That was not her uh, milieu. That wasn't her jam. And I would encourage our listeners to, you know, yes, you're coming to this because you're a fan of opera, but if you've not had an opportunity to to, to delve into art song, uh, believe me, message us, and we have a ton of ways to, to point you. The, the cool thing, and I've I've maintained this throughout my singing career and my administrative career, is that in opera, in terms of characters, you kind of get to be one person for two to four and a half hours. In an art song, you can be a number of people throughout one cycle. So there's so much great character work and shifting and molding that that people can do through art song. And it's such a really cool way to get bite-sized pieces of this beautiful art form that we love. Brendan Keith Brown is a 
conductor slash author who we've already referenced uh, in previous episodes because of his social justice essays on the medium. And uh, this one I felt like had two different really messages. Uh, one about how we are non-essential <laughs> as musicians, but also the reminder to the, the bougie white people of classical music that just because we're in a pandemic doesn't mean we, we have to stop, you know, paying attention to music that is not white. Yeah, it's um, it's a good point, and it's something that's really important to remember, especially because we were, you know, before our current set of pandemical circumstances came to be, we were seeing this uptick in visibility for all different sorts of minority musicians and composers, and uh, so many houses were really starting to take that. I can curse, right, because this is a podcast. They can take that shit seriously, you know, and so I don't want that to be lost because we are stuck at home. Yeah. And the only people who like have the technology are like Joyce DiDonato and Renee Fleming and, you know, and Renee Papa. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, it's a whole team of producers who's helping, you know, you can tell which, you can tell which homemade quarantine projects were really homemade and how many were a professional collaboration. And not that one of those is any <laughs> better than the other, but um, this article makes a lot of points that are hard to read, but difficult to keep in mind. Uh, that are true now more than ever, just about the structural inequity, uh, inequities, not inequities, uh, the structural inequities that are inherent in, in the classical music audience and how uh, th- the problem's not just going to go away because now there's a bigger problem. Well, I guess we should finish up since we've had a long episode with this Anna Dutrepko video. I'm not sure if you're all able to see it now. It might have been taken down, but it was... Oh, Sonia. <laughs> it was live up until today, and I saw a lot of my friends talking about it. It's like, who is this woman? So the the video is essentially an advertisement for some kind of orthotic or something. Uh, if you've been The trying, lipo loop. The lipo loop, yeah. And it uses a lot of performance footage of Anna Netrebko, but yet the testimonial is from some singer named Sonia Vargas. And I just can't believe that Netrebko's PR has not found this and been told about it and has asked for a cease and desist. Maybe that's why it's maybe hard to find right now. But Maybe it's a transformative work of art. <laughs> they're, they're, they're under the copyright laws. Uh, my favorite part of it is when there's footage of her, of Anna Dutrebko signing her own albums with her own name on it. And it's like, Sonia was doing this all day. What was well, she thinking? Some of, the, some of the claims. Well, first of all, you know, the, the performance footage they're showing, it's not in any linear order. So, you know, right there, the, the storytelling is all wrong. Number two, um, they're like, oh, well, she... She all of a sudden put on weight, and then her voice was weakened. Uh, fun fact, that's usually not what happens. It kind of goes the <laughs> other way. Once your body's got more heft and energy and power, guess what? Your voice gets bigger and louder. Usually. Yes. Well, um, that's a wrap for Monday, April 20th, 420 for all of our uh marijuana-enjoying listeners. I personally don't ever partake, so maybe that's Happy why. day! Maybe Though it would be legal if yeah. you chose to in Illinois. Let's throw it back to, to George, and maybe he'll throw it back to us for a good call, bad call. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. All right, Ashley, do you want to start? I do. 
so our, you know, our favorite operatic non-opera composer, Stephen Sondheim, just had a birthday. Uh, and for his 90th birthday, they put out this album. It's based on, um, it's adapted and expanded from this 2018 concert that they did. And I just, I'll give you the title and it will give you all of the reasons why it brings me joy. Losing My Mind. Disco fever dream. Is incredible. Makes them disco hits. And it's with a whole bunch of people. It's on Broadway records. And so it takes a whole bunch of really awesome Broadway stars. Allison Love, Blaine Krause, Lisa Folds, Charity Angel Dawson, Michelle Vaidya, Brittany Price, Juan Crawley, the list goes on. It is absolutely extraordinary. Actually, and it is everything time. you never knew you wanted, but you need. One more time, could you say the title of the piece? You pixelated for a second. Sorry about that. Uh, yeah, the album is called Losing My Mind, a Sondheim Disco Fever Dream. <laughs> nice. How about you, Matt? I actually did that. It's dip into, I dipped into some Sondheim this week, too, and watched the old video of the, the Little Night music from the 80s that they did <gasps> at Rest in Peace uh, New York City Opera Ooh. that actually has a cast of all people who can sing it, um, which does not occur on either of the cast albums that have been made of that show. So highly recommend searching that out. Uh, in, in addition to all of your other streaming uh, streaming bonbons this week. And for me, uh, there is a Spanish baritone named Victor Cruz who wins the early music quarantine at home project with a piece called Lamento de la Wookie. I'm going to play just a little bit of it here for you. This is a Monteverdi madrigal. I love this thing so much. It's so genius. You have to watch the whole thing. And, um, I, I just can't believe that he went through all the trouble and he put on all the costumes and he plays continuo and he sings all the parts and I don't know how he got the Wookiee noises. Talk about a transformative work of art. <laughs> so look up on the YouTube Lamento de la Wookiee and like that, like that shit, man, because it's so good. All right, yes. back, back to you, George. All right, team, thanks for throwing the ball back to me. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at VoxerShorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Theme song Vodka Inferno is written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter. We're at Opera Box Score. And this podcast version of our show is available wherever you get your pods. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. Thanks again to our guest, Nicholas Tamanya, for Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave. I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera in those rare moments when you're not looking at a screen. We're back with an all-new podcast next Tuesday, April 28. More opera news, more hot takes, more lockdown. Join us.